Well, hello, 945. Hello to those of you who are watching at home via the live stream. Second Sunday we're live streaming. We're going to keep doing this forever until Jesus comes back. So um, thank you for joining us at home via the live stream. Sorry about the Seahawks, but next year, right? Next year, right? Go Mariners. Um, a pastor friend of mine says that early in his career, he would never be able to sleep on a Saturday night because he felt like the next morning when it came time to preach, he had 20 minutes to justify his existence. 20 minutes being preacher speak for 35, let's, let's, let's be real, right? And he felt that every sermon had to have the funniest jokes ever, which is why if you're at a party and you see someone writing down people's jokes, that's a pastor, okay? That's, we're desperate. And he said he felt like the sermon was a failure if at the end people didn't have tears in their eyes. And there was even one woman who would sit in the front row, and when he started to preach, she'd take out her handkerchief as if saying, come on, pastor, make me cry. Right? And she, if she didn't cry, she would be really disappointed. And afterwards, he'd stand in the lobby hoping for, quote, enough compliments to fertilize a large field. And if he didn't get them, he would be depressed for days. And just to be clear, that really was a friend of mine, not me. So just to be <coughs> clear, but mostly not me anyway. He was in bondage to stress, worry, anxiety. Why? Because he had an idol. Because he was getting his self-worth and fulfillment uh, from what other people thought about him rather than from God. That was the center of his life, not God. The Bible calls that idolatry. And we're doing a sermon series on Jeremiah, who lived during the scariest era in Israel's history, when the Babylonian Empire conquered them and took them into exile for 70 years. But Jeremiah, in the middle of that, brings a message of hope by pointing to what God is doing in the middle of it, and he, and he shows how we can be resilient, how we can thrive in strange times. And last week, we talked about how you were made on purpose for a purpose to partner with Jesus in the renewal of all things. That was a happy message. Not so much chapter 2, where Jeremiah has a kind of harsher message, more challenging message about idolatry. Now, let me define that word, because that's kind of a weird word. We don't use it very much. The passage we read today says, they'd say to wood, you are my father, and to stone you gave me birth. And he's referring to statues that people would carve, and then they would bow down and worship them. Now, I'm going out on a limb here, and I'm just guessing none of you did that this week, right? But we do worship many, many things, right? I mean, worship is what you, what you focus on. Worship is where you get your self-worth, your security, your joy. So everybody worships. If you don't believe me, go to the Apple store, right? <laughs> go to a rock concert, right? I mean, it's, it's all over. And our culture has tons of idols, right? Too many to name. Comfort, politics, money, sex, power, fame, how many likes I get on my posts. None of those things are bad. None of those things are bad. They're actually often very good. In this verse, wood and stone, they're not bad things. They're made by God. They're good things. So here's a definition of idolatry. Idolatry isn't always about bad things. Sometimes it is. More often, idolatry is making good things ultimate things. Romantic relationships are good, but if you make it ultimate, start thinking, oh, baby, I've just got to have you. I'll die without you. Now you're a Taylor Swift song. 
right? Being a parent is good unless, unless we look to our kids to give us ultimate fulfillment. That's too much pressure on our kids. Money is good unless we turn to money for, for, for security, self-worth, and joy. Someone on my Facebook feed posted this week a question. If, if you had to choose between your significant other and a million dollars, what's the first thing you would buy? That would be the, the front row had to catch up to the back row there on that, but that would be idolatry, right? And it brings bondage, but Jesus gives us freedom. In the passage we read today, Jeremiah is speaking to a nation where everything seems to be coming apart at the seams. And people are running around asking, why is everything, why does it seem that everything's falling apart? Why are we so divided as a country, right? So it has almost nothing to do with our current situation, but we're going to study it anyway. And through Jeremiah, God says this, have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God? In other words, your idols... The things you're turning to for security, self-worth, meaning, joy, they're wrecking you. They're wrecking your lives. And this passage spells out some of the bondage of idolatry, some of the downsides of it. And I've already mentioned the first way, stress, worry, anxiety. Behind our worries, there's often an idol, something we're terrified of losing. So for my pastor friend who was afraid, got nervous preaching, the idol that he had was other people's opinion of him. Right? And because he was afraid of losing that thing, his, he, it brought him worry and stress. What do you tend to worry about? Behind that, there may be an idol. Finances, relationships, succeeding in school or work or sports, they're good things, but if we start to think without them, oh my goodness, if I don't have that, oh my goodness, instead of turning to God for security, self-worth, and joy, right, then we end up worried and stressed out. Second downside of idolatry is we become enslaved. The text says to Israel, you're like a wild donkey, sniffing the wind in her craving. In her heat, who can restrain her? Males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. So kind of graphic, right? Like a little awkward Bible reading today. I cut out actually the most graphic parts because there are just some parts of the Bible you can't read in church, <laughs> which is truly weird. But... Um, for, for you said, I love other gods, I must go after them. So this is kind of an insulting comparison, right? You're, you're, you're like a donkey in heat, and their desire is the boss of them. Their desire controls them. They can't help themselves. I must go after these other gods. I can't help myself. I've got to have them or else, or else, or else. What are the things you say that about? I must have this, or else, or else. Oh, bad things happen, or else. When anything other than God is the center of our lives, we start to not be able to control ourselves. We just kind of can't help ourselves but go after things that maybe aren't going to do us any good. Last week, I made a sarcastic remark about cats, as I do. And uh, so someone sent me a video that really kind of proves that I'm right. It just shows you can't trust cats because they just can't help but be devious. Take a look. I rest my case. I, I'm not sure what she says when she points to the cat, but I think she says, it's a demon, right? 
That really has nothing to do with this sermon. I just wanted to show it. But in a way, it does. I'll make a link, okay? I'm an English major. I can connect anything, right? So the cat can't help itself, right? Just got to trip this little girl. I just can't. I'm a cat. That's what I do, right? Our idols, whatever they are, start to control us. Pretty soon, we are enslaved. We can't, we can't help ourselves. There's a YouTube video I would highly recommend called The Evolution of Michael Phelps. And in it, he talks about how after the London Olympics four years ago, he retired and fell into a deep depression, in part because he wasn't pleased with his performance in London. See, that's what his success idol did to him. You're Michael Phelps, and you feel like a failure, right? And he was sick of swimming, but he said, but, but without swimming, who was I? This, that's what defined him. And he ended up getting a DUI, you know, didn't have any sense of self-worth. He said, I just wanted to end it. He actually says that. I just had, I could not find any worth in myself. And at one point, he was so depressed, he couldn't get out of bed for days and days. But his good friend, Ray Lewis, who used to play football for the Baltimore Ravens and is a Christian, went to him, gave, him the, gave Michael Phelps the Christian book, The Purpose Driven Life. And it turned him around spiritually. And as you listen to that video, it seems pretty clear that he is on a journey to God. So then he decided to make a comeback, but this time was going to be different. He said he wasn't training for history, wasn't training for the medals, wasn't even training for the fans. He said this time he wanted to swim for himself and just enjoy the journey. And this summer in Rio, it was a different Michael Phelps than we saw four years ago. He was having fun. In his post-swim interviews, he was a steadier Michael Phelps, more at peace with himself. Even after the race where he got a silver instead of gold, something that would have bugged him earlier, he had this huge smile on his face. And he said, oh, no, I'm so glad for him, the guy that got the gold. I'm glad he won. It's, he deserves it. I am so happy. And he meant it. He was free and having fun. Free to do his best to succeed, but not be driven by it, not be a slave to it. That's the freedom that Jesus brings. Which takes me to the next point. <clears throat> the text says, you are a swift she-camel running here and there. I mean, just this is such a <laughs> complimentary text, right? You're a donkey and he, you're a camel, right? <laughs> Jeremiah doesn't pull any punches. Second thing, what this means is the second downside, our idols mean we're never going to be satisfied. Camels we're known for taking a couple steps one direction and then turning around, taking a couple steps the opposite direction, right? And what, 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 what God's saying here is when anything other than Jesus is the center of our lives, we move from thing to thing to thing. If only I could get into that college. If only I had a romantic partner. If only I could get that promotion. But then we get them, they don't satisfy, and so we go from thing to thing to thing. The famous songwriter Irving Berlin said that whenever he wrote a really good song, he would fall into a deep depression for weeks because he would think, well, I'll never write a song that good again. See, his success idol was never satisfied. And I actually, I, just to be honest, I actually sometimes do the same thing. If I have a sermon that's well-received, I'll think, well, that's it. I've peaked, right? All downhill from here, right? And the problem with preaching is that darn Sunday comes once a week. It's just really... Which brings me to the next downside of idolatry. Our idols desert us in our need. God says they have turned their backs to me. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. Ever do that? Ignore God and then something goes wrong. Help, help. Why did you abandon me? When there are, uh, where then are the gods that you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. If your looks is what you're obsessed with, well, they're not going to last. 
Winston Churchill said that by the time we're 70, everyone has the face they deserve. <laughs> Which is interesting if you look at a picture of him. <laughs> if it's success that is the center of your life, what happens when you fail? Because you will. Call on your gods then. If looks or success is your God, how can they help you when they're gone? God says to the Israelites, you will be disappointed by Egypt as you were by Assyria. You will not be helped by them. Referring to foreign alliances the Israelites had made that had let them down. In our culture, I think Christian churches can try to make foreign alliances in all kinds of ways. A big one is politics, both liberals and conservatives, right? If only we could get this person elected or this or that passed, that's, that's a foreign alliance, now, politics and government can be good, but they do not ultimately save us. And when politics becomes the center of our lives, we become very angry people, especially with each other. Which brings me to the next downside of idolatry, and it's injustice. And we'll see more of this as we go further into Jeremiah, but just to mention it here, the arson this weekend at the mosque in Bellevue, Right? Which, which may or may not turn out to be a hate crime, but in the last couple of months, there have been other mosques that have been vandalized, and some of those really truly were hate crimes. There's someone who seems to have made their ideology into an idol, and so now they are blinded. They can no longer hear Jesus' command to love our neighbor as ourselves, and I do not recall a footnote to that that says, except for people who believe differently or a different race than us. Amen? Amen. And what all of this adds up to is we miss out. We miss out. God says they followed worthless idols and we became, wor and, and became worthless themselves. In the book of Jonah, which we looked at last month, Jonah says those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that might otherwise be theirs. When we cling to these idols, we miss out on a whole lot of stuff. So for instance, my comfort idol almost kept me from some of the greatest adventures of my life, including coming here. If I had given in to my idol of comfort and security, I never would have come here, and oh my goodness, what I would have missed out on. Some of you may have heard me tell this story before, but uh, when I was working on my dissertation, I worked constantly. I just worked nonstop on that thing. It was also my first year of marriage. How do you think that went? So one night I came home after working way too long on the dissertation, and right as I opened the door, Christina threw a spoon at me. Okay, now no husbands were harmed in this sermon illustration, just to kind of, right? But, and she didn't throw it at me so much as just kind of by me to get my attention. And, and, and that's what I love about her. She doesn't play these weird communication games. You know, like, <laughs> like when you sense that something's wrong with someone and you say, you know, what's wrong? And they say, nothing, I'm fine, right? She doesn't do that. She just throws a spoon at you, you know where you stand, right? And she stomped her foot and she said, that dissertation doesn't love you. I do. So why are you spending so much time with it? Oh, good question. Right? It had become my idol. And I was missing out on the fun of being a newlywed, so I learned a better work-life balance. Bottom line is, idolatry sucks. <laughs> right? it just, we miss out on a ton of stuff. All right, so how do we get free of it? What's the road to freedom? Couple of things. First, cut your idol down to its proper size. <clears throat> Idols are so often good things that we've turned into these big things to fulfill everything and, and they can't do it. Right? Someone said to me the other day, it seems like you have a good marriage. What do you think is the secret? And I said, low expectations. 
Right? Like my wife has low expectations of me. It's very handy. But here's what I mean, right? So often we look to our spouse to fulfill all of our emotional, spiritual, intellectual, social needs, right? Here's the sum total of my neediness. Fulfill me, baby. Right? And no person can do that. That turns them into an idol. And spouses bring a lot of great stuff into our life, but they can't bring everything. Only God is our ultimate fulfillment. We also need other people. We need extended family. We need community, right? It takes a village to deal with you and me. If there's a good thing that you've made an ultimate thing, cut it down to its proper size. Second, ask this question, what am I missing out on because of my idols? And let that kind of motivate you. And then third, realize God's intense love for you. In this passage, God says, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me. Right? He's using relational language there, but it's in the past tense. He's using the language of divorce, which he mentions a few verses later. Some of you have been through divorce, and you know that one of the painful things about divorce is the person you have been the most vulnerable with is no longer there. They're gone. That's how God feels when we abandon him. It breaks his heart. And this is where the God revealed in Jesus is different than every other God. See, we don't follow some passionless, stoic, philosophical God way up there. We follow a passionate God who passionately loves us. And this is key because we don't change as human beings by beating ourselves up and scolding ourselves. No, 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 no. We change when we experience God's love for us. And I'll give you an example in a minute. So pray this prayer. Lord, dethrone my idol, whatever it is, and replace it with an experience of your love. Because part of the reason we try so hard to get the perfect grades or have the perfect kids or, or have the perfect job is because we're trying to prove ourselves worthy, trying to be accepted. And God says, I am that for you. If you understand how amazing you are in my sight, you would never need those idols again. Because all our idols do is take and take and take. Time, energy, they take and take. But Jesus doesn't take, he gives. God loved us so much, he came himself in the person of Jesus, died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, so that now when God looks at us, all he sees is everything good. He was cast out so you could be brought in. He was disfigured so you could be beautiful. He took on all our sin so that you could be clean. Radical love. And when that moves from our heads to our hearts by the power of his Holy Spirit, we get free of our idols. God says, I see you. I see every failure. I see every sin. And I choose you. And when we get that, then we can try to be successful at school or at work, but it won't drive us. We can try to look our best, but it won't enslave us. We can do our best to be a great parent, but when we fail, we're not going to beat ourselves up. Ask Jesus for a tangible experience of his love. Fourth, spiritual training exercises. If your false God is money, the real God has given us a solution, an exercise, training exercise called giving. And when we give our money away, right, we discover that God provides, we can be happy on less than we thought we needed, and we see our money change people's lives. And that helps free us from the money God. If people-pleasing is your false God, try doing something good and not telling anyone about it. Or tell some of your fears and sins to a trusted Christian friend so they know the real you, not the Instagram you. And then finally, if one of your idols is slipping away, if it feels like you're losing something that maybe is an idol, pray this prayer, Jesus, what are you trying to teach me? Because while God may not be actually causing that idol to slip away, he probably does want to at least use that loss 
to help you get free of it. <clears throat> As I've shared with you many times, I, in my life, I had three long-time life-changing mentors. Two of those three died two years ago. My college pastor, who'd known me my whole life, and my predecessor here, Dick Leon. And not a week goes by that I don't miss both of them or wish that I could ask a question that I've got. And I've grieved their loss. I've grieved it deeply, and that's appropriate. But to be honest with you, at times, I also started to kind of turn them into idols. Kind of started to think, well, without them, God can't guide me anymore because he'd always guided through them. Without them, God can't teach me. Without those two mentors in my life, well, then God can't bless me anymore. I kind of made them into an idol. Now, I still have some great mentors in this church, right? But in terms of people who really know me a long time and who do kind of the same work that I do, I only had one mentor of those three left, the pastor I worked for in California. Well, back in April, my family and I went to Hawaii, and when the plane landed, I turned on my phone, and I had five messages with a Bay Area area code, and I didn't even have to listen. The only reason so many people would call from California was because that last longtime mentor had died. And my heart just kind of sank. I mean, the very last thing I'd said to him, the last time we talked on the phone, before I hung up, I said, don't die on me. And he said, I'll do my best, right? So I called a friend, confirmed what I knew, drove to our hotel, and then I went for a walk on the beach, and I prayed. And as I did, I really felt Jesus' presence. I really felt Jesus' love. I really felt him there. And it wasn't just because I was in Hawaii, though that didn't hurt. And then I had a thought that wasn't mine. Most people don't even get one life-changing mentor, and I had three. And not just ordinary mentors, three of the most godly, amazing men in this or any other denomination. And then I thought, oh my goodness, with those men in my life, I should have turned out way better than I did. <laughs> but I shoved that aside, and then I kind of just felt Jesus say, it hurts because it was good. There's grief because there's gratitude. And I knew that the God who had steered those men into my life was with me still. And he had not forgotten me. And he, and he is now calling me to a new challenge. I'm the mentor now. Plus, I still have great mentors in this church. And seeing Jesus in the middle of all of that, feeling Jesus' presence, his love, it changed me. And I went from feeling like, feeling like a victim to a victor. I went from grief to gratitude. Now, were my mentors good? Oh, they were very good. Some of the greatest blessings in my life. But in my grief, I had put them in the place of God. As though God could no longer guide me if they were gone. And the result was fear and stress. I had replaced the giver with the gift. But when I experienced Jesus' love, cut that idol down to its proper size. They were good, but they weren't God. Practice the spiritual discipline of gratitude. I was free. And no longer worried that without those men in my life, God could no longer teach, guide, or bless. Because of course, he can. So, what idols are you clinging to? What's the bondage it's bringing you? What are you forfeiting? What are you missing out on because of it? Ask Jesus to give you an experience of his love. Cut those idols down to their proper size and receive the grace and power that only Jesus can give. You know, the whole of human history is about a God in passionate pursuit of a creation that is constantly running away from him. And Jesus is his ultimate demonstration of just how far he will go to get us back. And this is where Jesus is different than all the idols, all the false gods in history. Because see, throughout history, idols have taken many forms. 
There have been idols with swords, idols with spears, idols with tridents, hammers, and helmets. There have been idols on pedestals, idols on horseback, idols on mountains and on shrines, but there has never been an idol on a cross because only Jesus loves that much. So in the words of the prophet Hosea, let us return. Let us return to the Lord. For though we are torn, he will bind us up. Though we are wounded, he will heal. And like the spring rain watering the earth, he will come to us and set us free. So Jesus, thank you for your love. And we ask that you would help us by the power of your spirit to put you in the center of our life, to follow only you. Lord, woo us away from our idols because you and you alone are God. You and you alone love us. You and you alone are our hope and we trust in you. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.